Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. You may have heard this week that Bruxy Cavey, the former pastor of the Meeting House, was arrested. Uh, I'm not going to go into the reasons for it, but if you've spent any amount of time in uh, church world in Hamilton, you know that Bruxy Cavey casts a long shadow here. He actually got his start in Hamilton. The Meeting House sort of branded itself as a, a church for people who aren't into church. And what happened with Bruxy, unfortunately, is like what's happening in a lot of churches that we see. Before Bruxy, there was this guy, James McDonald. He's former pastor of Harvest Church in Chicago. And this guy, Brian Houston, who's part of Hillsong in Australia. There's this guy, Bill Hybels. He's the former pastor of Willow Creek in Chicago, one of the largest churches in the United States. Uh, there's this guy, Ravi Zacharias, who is a world-famous apologist, traveled the world convincing people that Jesus uh, really lived and um, convincing them to embrace Jesus as, as Lord and Savior. That's Ravi Zacharias. There's this guy, Jerry Falwell Jr. He's the former president of Liberty University in Virginia. Some of you would know this guy, Mark Driscoll. He's the founding pastor of Mars Hill Church in Seattle. And uh, this guy, Carl Lentz. Carl Lentz is the former pastor of Hillsong Church in Hollywood. Some of you would know Creflo Dollar. Creflo Dollar is a famous prosperity preacher, uh, no longer in ministry. And then C.J. Mahaney, who was a, in fact, he was one of the founders of Together for the Gospel, which some of you would be familiar with. Some of you would also be familiar with uh, the Gospel Coalition, which C.J. Mahaney was a founding uh, member of. What do all these names have in common? Well, each is a, is a famous Christian leader who is now disqualified. They're disqualified. Somehow it became known that the person that they were in public didn't match how they behaved in private. And uh, it's, it's typically a male problem, although it's not exclusively male. But this problem transcends, you know, it transcends race. It transcends tradition. These guys are... You know, high church and low church. They're evangelical and mainline. They're liberal and they're conservative. Some of them are older, maybe baby boomers, baby busters. Some of them are millennials and Gen Z. They are white collar and they're blue collar. And today, with maybe one or two exceptions, none of these leaders is in a paid ministry role. And you, we want to know, like, what happened? What happened? Is it that the power got to their head? Is it that they felt that they were too important to fail? Is it that they were above accountability? Is it that they believed that they were entitled to certain perks because of how successful they were? Well, there might be truth to all of these. You know, elsewhere in scripture, Jesus refers to this kind of leader as a wolf in sheep's clothing. But here in this morning's passage in Matthew 23, he calls them whitewashed tombs. Whitewashed tombs. Uh, 
So whether you call them wolves in sheep's clothing or whitewashed tombs, today we know them as narcissists. Narcissists. Now, you kids might not know what a narcissist is. The word narcissism comes from this ancient Greek myth of a, of a handsome guy who didn't love anyone. This guy's name was Narcissus, and he, he, he didn't know how to love. Okay, And so the gods punished him. And so one day, Narcissus is out you know, in the forest, and he looks down into a little pool, a puddle or a pool, and he sees his reflection, and he falls in love with what he sees, which is himself. He falls in love with himself, except that a reflection can't love you back. And so Narcissus became obsessed with getting his reflection to love him back. He lost his mind trying to make that reflection love him. And in the end, Narcissus died of a broken heart. In fact, the story of Narcissus, that's why we call certain substances uh, narcotics. Uh, That's where we get the term narcissism. And it turns out that in the church, narcissism is actually a pretty big problem. Now, I think I should qualify something before we get going. Uh, There's something kind of risky about preaching against narcissism. Okay, like some of you hearing this, you might, you know, hear that I'm preaching on narcissism and you might infer that I've conquered this thing. Like it's it's not a problem for me. Like surely if he's if he's preaching on uh, celebrity pastors and narcissists, then there's no way this is a problem for Mike. Like what a great church. And except for all, you know, I am such a narcissist that preaching about narcissism is exactly what I would do to cover my tracks and trick you so that you don't suspect, suspect me of being a narcissist. And so just to, just to be clear, uh, let's not assume that myself or, or other leaders in this church or other churches, let's not assume that we aren't tempted by power and fame. Okay, I wouldn't want you to make that assumption. I also wouldn't want you to think that just because I haven't been accused of anything too serious yet, that it can't happen, that I will never lose my way. Like, I need to hear this message too. I need to be on guard and fight against narcissism, lest I become disqualified. Parker Palmer is the name of a Christian activist, and he's a Quaker theologian, and he's written quite a bit, actually. He has had a lot to say about the dangers of Christian leaders who don't know the ways that they're tempted by narcissism. He says, this is Parker Palmer, he says, a leader is a person who must take special responsibility for what's going on inside of himself or herself, lest the act of leadership create more harm than good. And then listen to this by Diane Langberg. She's a Christian scholar and theologian. She she literally wrote the book on the subject of narcissism in the church. She says, sometimes the blame is shared between the pastors and their churches. Like it's not always just the pastor's fault. She says, not only are there many wolves in the sheepfold today, but we, in the name of God, have protected their place among God's sheep by our complicity, by our cover-up, by our deceit, we have used vulnerable and individual and collective power to protect the institution of shepherding rather than the sheep. Do you hear that? 
We're doing this in protecting the institution of shepherding rather than the sheep. Well, what can the church do about narcissists? That's what we want to talk about today. Let's hear Jesus warn us about the problem. Let's hear it in his own words. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, or some of your versions might say a sepulcher, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now, let's let's get into this a little bit and, and, and understand what Jesus is trying to say, what, he's, what he wants us to hear today. Now, most of us, when we think of a tomb, or another word for it is a sepulcher, when we think of that, we think of something like this. You think of like a spooky stone closet and inside of it is like like dust and dirt and spider webs and coffins and spooky music and there's bones and nasty things inside of a tomb, okay? You probably don't think of this. Now, this is an example of a tomb that has been whitewashed. It actually takes a lot of effort. And you, in order to whitewash something, you need buckets of, of paint and plaster, and you got to mix this mixture all together. And uh, you use your hands and you smudge it all over the tomb in order to make it look like this. And Jesus says, sure, it's beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, it's full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In other words, whitewashing is a fancy way, it's a process that people use in order to make other people forget that what they're staring at is really a tomb. Okay? Whitewashing is what you do in order to trick people into forgetting that they're really staring at a tomb. And Jesus tells the Pharisees, that's what you are. That's what you are. Notice, this is not uh, about what they do. This, This woe is a unique one in the sense that it's not about what they do. It's about what they are. Jesus is saying their whole righteousness and obedience thing, it's all a trick. It's all branding. It's all image management. It's all a a distraction to keep people from seeing the truth that they really are corrupt and evil. That's what this is really about. And that's, that's a serious judgment coming from Jesus, the Son of God. Now, we need to pause here for a moment and just realize what Jesus isn't mad about, what he's not upset about. Jesus is not upset that the Pharisees are sinners, okay? He's not upset that they are sinners any more than he would be upset over a tomb that has bones inside, right? That doesn't shock Jesus. It, I think if, if the Pharisees were honest about their sin, if they were honest about their temptations, Jesus wouldn't have a problem and there wouldn't be a woe or a warning here. Okay? And I think in the same way, it's important for us to acknowledge there are no perfect leaders in the church. Okay? There are no perfect leaders in the church today. The problem with this woe isn't that the Pharisees are, are, are sinful or broken or lost. The problem in this woe is the effort that these Pharisees put into covering up their corruption. It's the effort that they put into looking righteous so that they never actually need to repent. 
Like if they can just whitewash their sin, if they can just whitewash their attitudes and their corruption, they actually never need to learn anything. They never need to grow. They never need to be accountable to anybody. And so it's this deception that's the problem. Okay? It's the trick. It's the deception. It's the image management that is such a problem for Jesus. And I think we need to translate that idea to the church here. Okay? If we translate this idea to the church, we need to acknowledge that many of the leaders that appear sinful or appear broken are actually still qualified to lead. Okay? Some of the leaders in the church who appear to be a mess are actually qualified to lead. While others who appear righteous and appear polished and appear important and irreplaceable are actually disqualified. That seems like a point that needs to be made before we go much further. And so so we need to have a conversation today about what qualifies and what disqualifies leaders in the church. That's what that's what the, today's about. That's what this woe is about. You know, about 10 years ago at the 2012 Olympics, uh, the Canadian men's 4x100 relay team, they ran a good race and they finished third. And they were ready to accept their bronze medal. And then all of a sudden there was a review of the race footage and it showed that one of the runners stepped onto the painted line between the lanes. And apparently, that's against the rule. I, I don't know, I'm not, a, I'm not a sporter, so I, don't, I didn't know that that's a rule, but it's a rule that you can't step on the line. And because this runner stepped on the line, Team Canada was disqualified. And of course, they appealed the decision. They admitted that that's what happened, but they, their argument was that it actually had no impact on anybody else. Like, what we, yeah, sure, we stepped on the line, but it didn't affect anybody else. It was, it, was a, it was a victimless crime. In fact, Canadian fans complained. It's not fair. This is Team Canada. We're elite athletes. They, they didn't harm anybody. They deserve better. They deserve another chance. Well, the judges pushed back on this sort of entitlement it's like, the you guys, you understand that the bronze medal isn't some inalienable right, right? Like, the expectations are clear, they're not secret, they don't change from team to team. You run your race according to the rules, or you're disqualified. Well, in the end, uh, the bronze medal went to the team from Trinidad and Tobago. Canada didn't get a pass, they didn't get any special treatment, they were disqualified. And you know, that's, that sucks for Canada, right? I mean, if you think about, think about it, if you go to all that trouble, if you're the, the, if you're one of the, you know, if you're one of the competitors from Team Canada, you go to all that trouble to get up early, to train, to go to bed early as well, to, to eat right and to, you know, to skip parties and you do all of that for years and years in order to compete in this race, being disqualified is the worst possible outcome. Like, it's worse to be disqualified than to come in last. You agree with me on that? Like, it's worse to be disqualified than it is to even come in last. Like, if we were to send a bunch of dad bods who have done no training, who sleep until 10 a.m. every morning and eat a bag of Doritos every night before bed, and they follow the rules and they come in last after a half an hour of running the race, they come in last... 
that would still be better than being disqualified. You with me on that? And in the same way, there is a warning in here for for Christians, for followers of Jesus, not just leaders. In fact, the Apostle Paul uh, offered us a warning in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He wants us to take seriously that we there that we are at risk of being disqualified if we don't run our race. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul compares all of us to athletes who are training for a race. He says there's strict training and the winner gets this wreath. Like you get this laurel wreath made of uh, made of leaves that are woven together and it, it looks kind of like a crown and it's really nice. It's a cool prize, but eventually it's going to rot and disappear. And Paul wants us to know that as followers of Jesus, the crown that we receive if we run and complete our race, that crown lasts forever. That crown is eternal life. And it's and it's not some right, okay? Like nobody's entitled to eternal life as though we can do what we want, drop out of the race, act like the rest of the world in private, but whitewash our lives and still expect to receive the crown. No, it, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. Eternal life is a prize and we have to finish the race. We have to finish the race. And that's why Paul says in verse 27, I train and I make my body a slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the race. Do you hear that? Paul trains. Paul makes his body a slave so that he won't be disqualified. Now there's a warning in here. Paul has just shared his concern that he might be disqualified. Okay, Paul, the apostle. And you might say, like, surely if anybody deserves to relax, if anybody has earned a break uh, from from their sort of Christian morality, if anybody has earned a chance to enjoy a few perks, surely it's Paul. And he's saying no. No. Like, that's not helpful. That attitude is not going to help anybody finish their race. In fact, that's exactly why the Pharisees could get away in that culture with being so self-righteous. See, Pharisees don't run. They don't train. They don't discipline themselves. They just need to look like they do. They need to look busy. They just need to look devoted to God. They just need to look tired out and exhausted from all that obedience to God. And Paul is saying that after all of his years, in spite of the fact that he's an apostle, In spite of all that he's done, there's a risk that after all of his years of discipline and training and preaching, that Paul might lose his way. And he might coast for a while. He might drop out of the race and be disqualified. And we need to learn from this warning. We need to heed this warning. There is no special exception uh, for leaders. Each of us is a runner in a race. We are all runners in a race. Now, how's your race going? How are you doing in your race? Are you are you on track to finish? Are you coasting? Are you are you close to dropping out? You know, nobody's saying in this passage that you have to place first. No, it's not about competing with one another to to do better than each other. But we have to finish. We must finish the race. Even leaders. 
even apostles. Believe me, if, if the Apostle Paul could be disqualified, so could anybody. Me, you, Bruxy, all these guys, all these famous rock star stallion preachers, celebrity preachers who are now disqualified. We need to heed this warning. Now, we need to talk through this a little more. So this next little section is going to be interactive for a bit, okay? For, for there to be a, a healthy culture within a church, for the, for the church to be unfriendly and unwelcome to narcissists, we need to have a conversation like, what do churches and pastors need from each other? Okay, what do churches and leaders need from each other? So in a minute here, I'm going to just number us off as ones and twos. And if you're a one, you're going to go on this side of the room. If you're a two, you're going to go on that side of the room. If you're a one, the question I'd like you guys to discuss is what does a pastor need from their church? Okay, what does a pastor or leader need from their church? And if you're on the other side, your, your question, if you're, if you're a two, your question is what does a church need from their pastor? All right, what does a church need from their pastor or leader? So go ahead and discuss that for a few minutes and we'll have time to uh, hear from you uh, at the end and then I'll close us up. We could keep talking about this for a while. In fact, I'd encourage you to continue the conversation over lunch. Uh, if I could share with you a, a big idea that I see for, for this morning, for this passage, it would be this. The church must stop platforming narcissists. The church must stop platforming narcissists and we need to deem them disqualified. Okay? We need to deem them disqualified. As long as churches are safe for the kinds of leaders that Jesus calls whitewashed tombs and wolves in sheep's clothing, our churches will never truly be safe for anybody else. Instead, churches should platform people who are like Jesus. Our leaders need to be people like Jesus. We need to be led by people like Jesus, not impressive strangers who entertain us and don't ever let us get to know them. I'm talking about servant leaders who, along with us, are being shaped by Jesus in their beliefs and in their attitudes and in their conduct. All right? In their beliefs so that they, they, they actually believe what they say they believe and what they teach. And in their attitudes, they're being shaped by Jesus in their attitudes so that they are actually the same person on the inside as they are on the outside. And people who are shaped by Jesus in their conduct so that they're the same person in private as they are in public. That's who we, the church, should be led by. Nobody else is qualified to lead. No one else is qualified to lead, okay? Everyone else is disqualified. Now, maybe that sounds to you like a, an impossible standard. I, I could appreciate that. On the other hand, let me, let me close by telling you about one of the first Christian leaders who got it. I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm actually talking about Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. What Jesus said about John the Baptist is that among those born of women, there is no one greater than him. There's nobody greater than John the Baptist. That's, that's, quite, that's quite a statement coming from Jesus, isn't it? And, and, and so John is a, John's a big deal. 
and, and like Jesus, the crowds would gather to hear his teaching. And like Jesus, John the Baptist had harsh words for the Pharisees. He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? In fact, eventually, people are going to ask John the Baptist when they see people leaving John to go be with Jesus, you know, almost like they're leaving John's church to go and be with Jesus' church. So people are going to ask John, how do you feel about the fact that everybody's leaving you in order to follow Jesus? And John's answer is awesome. And with this, I want to close. Because John doesn't throw Jesus under the bus. John doesn't complain about how his followers have betrayed him, how they've been disloyal, how after all these years, he deserves better. He doesn't, he also doesn't like pivot and rebrand himself or reinvent himself to, in order to bring those followers back. Here's what John the Baptist says. Here's what he says. And and, and in fact, I, I pray that this would be the attitude of my heart. John the Baptist said, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. Let me pause here for a second. So John is picturing a wedding between the bridegroom and the bride, where the bridegroom is Jesus and the bride is the church. And John knows he's just the attendant. He's just the the friend who attends the bridegroom. He's just waiting for the groom to arrive. And when the, the groom shows up, That friend is full of joy. And John says, that joy is mine and it is now complete. Now listen to this. He must become greater. I must become less. Some of your versions say, he must increase, but I must decrease. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.